Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and today I have Scott Varho. Get this, he's the chief evangelist of Three Pillar Global. Uh, we're going to hear all about um, Scott Varho, his career, his perspective on success, and Three Pillar Global. Welcome to The Indispensables, Scott Varho. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Uh, well, it is a privilege uh, to, to be speaking with you. And so just for the uninitiated, uh, can you explain to our listeners uh, what what does Three Pillar Global do? Yeah, so Three Pillar Global is a is an outsourcing product development firm. So you know, whereas there are a lot of companies that do outsource technology um, of various types, but we really focus on uh, the types of technology that adds value. Um, so it's on the value generating side of the balance sheet. Um, places where uh, it's really important to make sure that. Uh, those experiences are chosen or those products are chosen by customers um, rather than, let's say, you know, brochureware websites or, or sort of the back office um, part of the industry. And so does that mean that um, you are a research and development shop? So we, we do the research and the development, yes. So we, in fact, one of our secret sauces, I think, is, is integrating the research with the development. So as you build, you're continually mining for insights around your customers and then applying those in the build process to get the maximum outcome. It turns out that, um, you know, for some, one of the easiest examples that I give is if you put an are you sure button, you know, I click, I click submit and it gives me this, are you sure? If you do that in a place where it's fairly obvious that I wanted to do that thing and it's easy for me to reverse it, then that's a really annoying extra click. If you put that, let's say right before I wire money out of my bank, my bank online, that's a really important moment for me to double to double check and make sure, yes, I'm confident that I'm sending the money to the right place before it leaves my account. And so that's I use that as a micro insight of, you know, if you want to build great products, you really have to get that kind of nuance from from your users and customers. Wait a minute, Scott, did you invent the are you sure button? <laughs> Thank God, no. Um, but I have seen it misapplied a number of places and applied well in others. Um, and I, I have spent time trying to figure out what's the difference. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. And so uh, uh, do you start with customer research? Or are you guys an MRD shop or or you get a, a, a requirements document and then you start innovating? Oh, thank God we don't do requirements documents anymore. Or we try not to. Um, you know, with, with the advent of Agile about 20, a little over 20 years ago, um, we, we really encourage an ongoing curiosity and an understanding that your users' needs and wants and the market that they're operating in um, are evolving at all times. And so your process and the way you go about building great digital experiences has to be similarly flexible. And Agile is, you know, I always re reduce it for people as ritualized change management. If I get new information, I should be making new decisions every two weeks. Um, and so what's interesting is so much of Agile right now is focused on iterative delivery, but we also need to focus on iterative discovery and how are we learning more about our customers um, so we don't actually recommend, you know, big research and then throw it over the wall to big engineering. We recommend integrating the two so that we have a continuous loop on both sides 
I'm always getting new insights and I'm always applying those insights in what we built and ship. Oh, I like the the method and uh, we can talk more about that. Uh, is three pillar uh, have a physical location? <laughs> we, we have many. <laughs> um, so we're actually, we operate in, uh, I think, nine countries at the moment. Um, I sometimes lose track because um, we have a couple where we don't have physical offices, but we do have employees. Um, so we, we draw from a number of talent pools around the country, around the U.S., as well as um, internationally, Mexico, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Canada, Romania, Czech Republic, India, Moldova. Um, so quite a few countries, um, we're, we're always looking to add great companies to our ecosystem. Um, but really what holds us together is the culture of craftsmanship and this product mindset. Uh, and because too many, too many outsourcing vendors are point and shoot mercenaries. They will do what you ask and nothing more. Um, and they, they won't push back and say, "Mm, I don't know if we're leveraging the technology to its greatest ROI here. Um, that's something that three pillar does regularly. We, we push back we, we like to call it polite pushback. We teach it. Um, it's an important part of our service that we are, uh, trying to make sure that you're optimizing your spend, uh, on, on things that are going to add value to your company. Wow. All right. So this is really, uh, interesting and tell me just, I mean, is it, maybe it's top secret, but what are some of the things you guys have created? Oh, so yeah, for, there, there are some things that clients don't like us to talk about and there are some things, uh, but uh, Park Mobile um, was, uh, was a product of ours. Um, everything that PBS, um, all of their streaming applications. So whether you're doing it online, on an iPad, on a Roku device, uh, what have you, um, we actually build all of their front end and back end infrastructure for that. Um, so down, you know, when Downtown Abbey streams to your iPad, you're, you're, you're using three pillar uh, software. Uh, we've been working with PBS for a long time. Uh, Telegraph, um, trying to think, uh, MasterCard's loyalty platform. Um, we've we've built some of the platform, but we've also done a number of the the large scale integrations. Let's say with Starbucks uh, and some other uh, Finnair, Air Canada. So we work on on quite a range of things across quite a range of industries. But it turns out that while industry expertise is helpful, what's really really good product development is still a nascent and evolving. Uh, craft and area. And so taking these techniques that I've been talking about, like integrating design with build is still not natural. Um, engineers and designers working together really closely uh, tends to be fraught. And so getting a culture that really emphasizes what is the mission? Why is this squad of humans collected? What are, what are we trying to achieve and move that sense of purpose beyond the group uh, and to this, the shared purpose uh, so that you're not showing up as an individual trying to show how good you are, you're trying to move the the, the shared needle uh, forward, and so that I think is is the real secret sauce of, of three pillars: high performing teams arranged around that that sense of purpose, and then really making sure that we make it personal. Anyone who tells you work isn't personal is is lying. Uh, work is incredibly personal, and so trying to provide that purpose and meaning through hey, like this this matters. We don't work on technology that doesn't matter. We work on on stuff that's revenue generating that's going to shift the direction of our clients and their customers. And, uh, and so it's worth it. It's worth applying that discretionary effort and also that, that humility, that curiosity and that courage that it takes to build great product. Um, okay. That's all so interesting. And, um, so uh, you have engineers, you have designers, how many people at, at three pillar global? So right now we have uh, about 2,500 craftspeople globally. Um, and we have, we have product management, we have user experience, uh, we have, uh, product engineering and architecture. 
which these days has to include cloud and cloud native um, capabilities. Uh, we also have data and analytics. Um, you know, that is obviously with the with, with all the buzz around ChatGPT, that's a that's a uh, an area that's a bright spot. A lot so of that's interest. like 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 business intelligence. It, so business intelligence would be more back end, uh, more int- right because that's that's you looking at your own data for your own purposes to make business decisions. But we we would look more at, at embedded analytics. Are you providing analytics in your product? Um, are you using right. that data dynamically to maybe drive something like machine learning, right? Where you're looking at patterns and applying those dynamically in the product, um, or are you just giving customers the ability to slice and dice data and make their own inferences in terms of what what that data means? So those are all within that practice. So you are the chief evangelist, 2,500 craftspeople. That's quite a church, Scott. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yes. The the, the religious analogy. Um, thank goodness Guy Kawasaki did this before I did, so I can, I can borrow from him. But uh, yeah, I always yeah. say I'm one part evangelist, but, uh, you know, I feel like... Um, uh, I'm glad to have company in the uh, in, in, <laughs> I, I, on the pulpit. Yeah, well, and and it really is it, it it's it's a lot of fun. It is a big it is a big group. Um, but you know, I, I had the the privilege of leading Three Pillars, a product development organization, for for about a year and a half. And so all of the cross people reported to me. Um, I spent a lot of time in our delivery centers doing Socratic discussions on what does it mean to be a craftsperson? What is, what is what is important about this work and, and how can we invest in it in a way that feels authentic to the craftspeople, but also delivers a benefit to clients? Because really, if we're going to build a company that's super successful, it's one that invites both parties in deeper and, and deeper levels of collaboration. Um, again, you know, these human aspects are so important, um, humility and courage. Um, uh, and, and people over-index on technical skill. They think technical skill is the key, but applied technical skill is really what you need. And, and that is, that's one of those things that's like, you know, a lazy genius doesn't do anything. They're just a genius on a couch. That's not interesting. But if you can take somebody who's really, really smart, really capable, has these skills, and they fully apply it in service of, of these objectives, that's where you get really, really exceptional outcomes. Yeah. Also, pop a genius onto a couch and, you know, there's still a genius in a week or a month, but in a couple of years, they're going to be uh, lo- so lost in their own thoughts that they're going to have stopped acquiring new information and exercising their brain muscles. And, um, you know, pretty soon that genius is kind of like a dummy. That's right. Well, and, and it's actually one of the things that I talk about internally when I'm talking to our, to our craftspeople is one of the advantages of client work is that it will stretch us in ways we don't expect. If we wanted to just go learn in a lab, which, you know, some, some technologists really love the, I want to define my own adventure and I want to work with the coolest tech all the time. It turns out, though, solving real-life problems using your skill can be incredibly rewarding, but it will present you with challenges you are not prepared for. And, and that, that growth is one of the things that I, I mean, that's one of my drugs of choice. I love seeing that growth. I love seeing craftspeople achieve things that they did not themselves expect to be able to do. Yeah, and especially if you are able to preach the word of ongoing curiosity the way you already have mentioned it here. Um, then um, that's going to lead to the kind of culture you're talking about. Okay, so let's get to you. Um, and uh, tell us, how does one become the chief evangelist at Three Pillar Global? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but I will tell you, I, you know, I think one of the things that is, is probably the most 
interesting quirk of mine is that I, you know, undergrad, I studied history, Central European history. I was really fascinated with the question of human identity, um, how I watched in, in European history in particular, I watched identities change very quickly in, in within a hundred years. Um, within my, gra- my great-grandparents' lifetime, they changed identities or the way that they identified. And again, these are, as we talk about national identities, we're talking about identities that people will fight and die for. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So where, where I got to know where you studied history. Uh, so I, I studied undergrad at Amherst College uh, in Massachusetts. Okay. Do you um, know that my wife and I are both class of 89 at Amherst? No, I did not know that. That's amazing. <laughs> and, my, and my dad is class of 54. That's incredible. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> what, what class? What class? Oh, so uh, 97 is when I graduated. 97. And so did you, who, so who were your history professors? So Professor Petropoulos, I don't know if you would know him. Um, he might've been there. I don't think he was when we were there. Um, yeah, he was. Uh, my, my wife was an American studies major. I was a political science major. Uh, um, my wife wrote a book about Henry Ward Beecher, the fellow standing next to the octagon. Mm-hmm. Uh, which won that's, the Pulitzer Prize, I have to mention. Um, oh, wow. and, yeah, right. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, so, uh, well, I will say go mammoths, even though, you know, I'm it's old weird. enough to It's weird. Like, I mean, now. <laughs> it's the more politically correct version of Amherst College these days. Um, you know, it's interesting. My wife uh, placed the president of Amherst, the last one, um, uh, Biddy Martin. So, uh, uh, she, 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 uh, is she in executive search in, in higher education? She uh, is. Yes. Yeah, I, listen, I was a big fan and a lot of our pals thought Betty Martin was, you know, too smart and too, too, too broad minded and, uh, too concerned with social justice and, uh, um, and, uh, too concerned with catching have, up with history. And I, have and you I met Amherst students. <laughs> yeah, like I just kept thinking like, what? Um, well that's, that's super cool. And, um, uh, yeah, there's a decent chance that my team was like, oh, this guy went to Amherst. Of course, he's going to be on the show. <laughs> well, what was really cool, too, is Amherst, because uh, I was a, a poor kid from California. Uh, my mom made less than you know the tuition as her annual salary the year I entered. And Amherst was just so generous, um, really uh, made it possible for me to go there, but also made it possible for me to study in Berlin, where I did a bunch of thesis research. Um, so I really got deep on the topic of, of Central European history and I, I loved it. Did you get to know Heidi Gilpin and people like that, the German professors? Yes, I knew Heidi. Yeah, she was great. Um, so German was the language I took uh, while I was there. I also took uh, Czech from uh, UMass, and I was I was interested in learning Czech, which is what led me to get my master's degree in in the Czech Republic, funded again by an Amher- an old Amherst fellowship, uh, the Kellogg Fellowship, and uh, I studied in the Czech Republic, got my master's degree there in political economics, um, I which. <laughs> yeah, um, it was it was an incredible ride. But what's interesting is is I end up in technology with no, you know, credibility or bona fides in technology at all, but a keen interest in human systems, right? That's history and economics are really about human systems. And and it makes and I'm interested in technology because it's an anthropocentric tool for for progress in, in humanity. So how do we leverage that in a way that brings the humans together um, and, and for good? Yeah, I was getting a smart guy vibe from you. So there you go. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm a total nerd. <laughs> yeah, uh, love it. Okay, so so uh, uh, he, you grew up in California. Uh, you ended up at, um, you know, the best college in the world. 
Um, <laughs> and then uh, no wonder, since it was founded to train Puritan ministers, why you have this evangelical streak in you. <laughs> um, and then uh, you 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 studied uh, economics in the Czech Republic, which is is quite fascinating. And then what? I mean, how did you end up in this world? I mean. Uh, sometimes you just show up on somebody's doorstep and they're like, "This guy, I like the cut of this guy's jib, but what, 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 what happened for you? <laughs> yeah, well, it, get, it gets weirder. So I moved back to the U.S. Uh, after finishing my degree in, in the Czech Republic. Um, I really had no intention of ever coming back to the U.S. Uh, I, I had learned German. I learned Czech fluently. I lived there. I had a car. I had an apartment. I was, I was, I was good. Um, but I was dating a girl who wanted to go to business school in the U.S. And so I'm like, OK, well, then we got to go back to the U.S. and, and you got to get a job. So moved back to the U.S. And I was kind of surprised to find out that nobody valued anything that I had learned. <laughs> um, it really had no market value. I, I just had a really hard time getting a job. And at the time, it was 19, it was 2000. Um, I actually came back looking in 1999, but um, moved back in 2000 without a job. And telecom was just at the tail end of the boom, and they were still hiring anyone with a heartbeat. So they were a little skeptical. They're like, why do you want to work here? I'm like, I don't really, but I need a job. <laughs> that wasn't how I answered the interview question. but No, um, good, 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 glad. But it got me into, uh, into telecommunications. And then I just you know, followed my curiosity because all of my coworkers what, what were like- What was your first telecommunications gig? It was provisioning circuits, narrowband and then broadband circuits. Um, so I ran a process. They gave you a script. They said, you do this, then you do this, then you do this. And they told you, just follow the steps in order and you'll be fine. Um, and I was like, I just, that just sounds so boring. I can't show up here eight hours a day and do and not have a clue what I'm doing. I was installing frame relay circuits. I never heard of frame relay. Asynchronous transfer mode, TCP IP. I'm building these networks. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and I just started reading books in my spare time. Like, what are these technologies? What's the... What, what gives? And uh, six months in, they sent me off to Ohio to be a subject matter expert on a software project. And they were, you know, all these consultants were there and they're like, we're going to do it totally differently this time. It's not going to be like any other software project you've worked on. I'm like, I have never worked on software. I have no idea what you're talking about. Wow. But I learned, and that's where I learned about Agile. They were rolling out extreme programming. And um, I was sort of fascinated by what they talked about as the old way of doing things and the new way. And then I figured out that out of the 75 subject matter experts that were in the room, there were really four of us who could answer a question in a way that a developer could take that and develop some software. And that's so interesting. So you, here you are in the early days of sprinting and uh, uh, putting little sticky notes up and uh, carving up projects into sprints and all that that's stuff. Cool. This is when uh, right around the time I was writing uh, winning the talent wars and uh and people were talking about telecommunications uh, integration and multi-platform uh, 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 telecom, and I and I remember thinking, um, "Oh yeah, that's that's not going to happen." And and I remember people saying, "Like, oh yeah, we're going to have a phone that's a computer and a TV and all this stuff." And I was like, "Oh my god, these people are," you know, I honestly <laughs> thought that they were like wrong. That they were and on I, drugs, and many of them were. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, uh, there was a company in the Netherlands I was working with, so I actually thought they're probably on drugs, and um, and uh, and and uh, and I just thought this is so improbable, mm -hmm. um, and uh, but 
you know, wow, here we are. And I, I remember saying to my wife, oh, yeah, it's going to have a microwave oven, too, and it's going to make breakfast. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, it, it really has been incredible to watch. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly no futurist. I didn't foretell, you know, any of these things happening, but, but I did see the, the level of investment being the, the economist, as well as this now budding uh, technical person, you know, seeing the intersection of the two, watching the money move, watching the capabilities evolve um, was really interesting. So um, I'm interested in this innovation uh, lab that they brought you to and um, and I'm guessing, and and please forgive me for making this presumption because you are an Amherst guy, um, but that maybe what you brought to the table was a hunger for learning and and knowing how to learn, mm-hmm. right? Even if you didn't know anything, right? What the one thing you might know is I know how to learn. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that combined with then this, what, what was fascinating to me was to see how, because while I was in the Czech Republic, you know, I, I did my master's entirely in Czech, so wow. it was really, really difficult, and I don't recommend it. Um, but the, but then I also did translations. I did a little bit of interpreting um, on the side to try to try to make money. And when I came back, what I found so fascinating is watching two people speaking English, not understanding each other, but thinking they did. Watching them say, "Yep, I got it," and I'm like, "No, you didn't." Like that person, like, let me clarify. That person was saying this. And you took that and, and they were like, oh yeah, yeah, totally. Well, then you're not on the same page. So it was this English to English translation that I found myself doing um, across this divide. Um, these two technical, I mean, telecom is, is hardware and about moving, uh, you know, ones and zeros across wires at, at light speed and software engineering is, is a very different craft. And so though both groups were technical, they did not speak the same language. Yeah, and I want to pick up what you were saying about because in, in in some ways it's it's a um, you know it's it's a classic role, right? The business analyst who can communicate to software developers what is the business need here, uh, but I think that gets glossed over in a lot of organizations and a lot of innovation shops. And it sounds like here, you know, sometimes I think of you know uh, like I am just a caveman lawyer, if you remember that. But you know, you come in from the outside, and yet you're you know, your brain is fertile, you know how to learn, you're paying attention, maybe because you didn't have uh, so many assumptions about what you already knew. Uh, but somehow here you become the interlocutor in the room who is who ma- you probably made yourself central to the discourse maybe going on there or uh, yeah. So tell us, so wh- or what lessons did you learn other than people often speak to each other in English and don't understand each other? Well, that, that was interesting. And then also just watching the, the process of how software, how the sausage gets made, software development overall, understanding the challenges that engineers start running into um, and, uh, and then navigating, oh, Hey, we told, we told upper management that we were going to do this by this date and it was going to deliver this benefit. We're off. And what do we do now? Um, so just, it was, it was definitely an interesting, I mean, it was young. So I threw, I threw myself at this, um, really tried to learn as much as I could and help everywhere I could. Um, and it just gave me a really broad view of, again, everything from expectations to the outside and how to manage those watching the fears of, of all the humans involved in the process, watching their ambitions, um, and, and just, just kept chipping away at it. But it, it, was, it was definitely interesting seeing places where the process broke down. Um, the, the outsized expectations to get the business case funded you know, against what was really possible, because at the end of the day, what's really possible is going to be discovered way downstream of that decision to say go. 
and that leap of faith, which is which is a big one. Um, that was fascinating for me to watch. Um, and and did of- you realize that now? Because I could see being a very experienced guy, twenty something years later, look seeing that in retrospect. But I'm wondering, like, if there's uh, if there are brainiac twenty five year old brainiacs who are listening to this, <laughs> thinking, man, I. I, I mean, everyone always treated me like the smartest guy in the room, but now I'm in this room where I have no idea what they're talking about. Um, um, and then, you know, what's your, what, what do you have to say to them? What, what, you know, like take heart, you know, your brains will shine through or what? Well, yeah. I mean, I actually, I, I think being curious and saying, I don't understand. Um, I got so much mileage off of, I don't understand what's going on. Can you break this down for me? And you know, and you got to know, like, if, if you're asking that question, you're asking for them to give something up. So hopefully you're giving something back of value. But the people that I worked with found value that I could provide them. And, and, I, and they, so then they didn't mind taking the time to coach me. And it was incredibly valuable uh, learning. And in retrospect, I mean, I, w- I just simply wouldn't be where I am today without those, those key advisors along the way um, that really de- demystified all of this for me. Like, how does this all come together? What's, what's going on here? Got it. And so, so back to, uh, curiosity and, um, and, and, and so, okay. So what happens? So, uh, uh, how did you go from point A to point Z, but you know, with a few stops along the way? Well, the, the, I'll give the abridged version. It's definitely a weird, weird path, but, uh, so telecom discovered well, we technology like weird path on this show because oh, it's we like weird. Well, okay. Yeah, well, well, only just because it turns out everybody, uh, uh, thinks, well, you know, Oh, nobody, you know, how does somebody get to be like Scott Varho? Right. And they think, well, I could never get there. And so what I like about this is that it turns out the most successful, the most interesting people, um, if, if, if they're willing to share their path, it's, you know, oh no, he's human. Yeah, no, it's a lot of, I mean, I just, it's, it's weird for me to look back on because it hasn't been linear in any, in any sense of the, the word. And, and it's really been opportunistic. The opportunities come up, but you also have to seize those opportunities and do something with them. And that's, that's the advice that I, I give, um, be open to opportunities and then, and then grab with both hands and throw yourself at them. And then, I mean, I, much like what I studied, I, you know, studying history, I was super passionate about identity, go get a master's degree in a, you know, post-communist transitioning com- country. Why? What was my goal? I, natu- I can tell you right now, I did not have one. I just was following my interests um, and, and on the faith that at the end of that would be something interesting as well, um, but no, no real plan. Um, Okay, and, so and, step one, uh, yeah. be very curious. Step two, make sure you got a lot of brain power. Step three, no plan. <laughs> no plan. Um, opportunity knocks. Uh, you should answer. <laughs> yes, yeah, seize opportunity and throw yourself at it and, and, and be advised that's a metaphor. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, I, I can honestly say that I probably threw myself a little bit too hard at things uh, for a decent decent part of my life, but... Uh, but it did pay off. Um, so after working in telecom for a while, I, uh, I started a nonprofit in Thailand. Um, that makes no sense. Um, uh, my best friend from high school said, hey, I want to do this. I need your help to do it. Uh, I have all the, all the research and knowledge. I don't have any idea how to apply it and make an organization run. Um, so that was an interesting foray. Uh, in order to fund that, I ended up back at the telecom. Um, 
um, because we weren't, we weren't very profitable. The nonprofit was a failure, but an excellent learning experience. And, and most of what I learned was how I like to work. I do not want to be in charge. Um, I was executive director of this company and I, I found it very lonely. And I really love teams. I really love working with, with teams. Um, I, I like knowing who I'm high-fiving at the end of the, the day. And, um, and that, that was an important- A lot of humans with shared purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love, I love that. Um, and discovering that about myself was probably one of the richest insights looking back. Um, but I, I, at the time, all I saw was the failure of our nonprofit. Um, but got back into telecom for a little while and then realized that most of my work in telecom would lead to layoffs because what I was working on was making things more efficient. And so all of the ROI for our projects was based on how many people can we let go if this is a, a success. And that wasn't what I got out of bed to do. I was getting out of bed to help my, my colleagues do better work, to focus their 80% of energy on the 20% of problems that were not obvious what you should do. And I need you to think here. Um, and instead, they, they wanted to get rid of as many people as they could. And once I realized that, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that any longer and ended up in, in uh, ed, education technology. I went to Pearson. Which was ah okay mammoth mammoth company. So, um, so so implementing new technologies to streamline operations, re-engineer and restructure. You thought, wait a minute, um, uh, that 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 sounds a lot like um, uh, like uh, capitalism uh, doing its thing. Yeah, which is I mean, it's noble work, um, no problem, but not work for me. I wanted to I wanted to add value uh, to both humanity and to the company that I worked for. I don't believe that those things have to be in conflict. Um, and that's probably a, a, a key thing that I try to teach, um, uh, especially 20-somethings today, as they seek meaning and purpose in work, is like for-profit work can be incredibly meaningful. There's, there's nothing about profit that, is, that undermines that. But do keep in mind how the profit gets made and, and the kind of work you get to do. Yeah. And, and um, so I hear that. And... Um... Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think uh, uh, you need accumulations of resources in order to do certain kinds of things. And after all, you know, that's how a lot of people feed their families uh, and, and make a meaningful contribution to a mission. So that's right, um, right. Uh, so uh, so I'm with you. So Pearson, uh, there's a nobler uh, cause, perhaps uh, education, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Building minds. And how long were you at Pearson? Oh, probably six or seven years, I think. Um, and what did you learn there? So that was uh, that was my probably one of my most intense learning experiences. So um, I started off as the first business analyst they had ever hired in identity and access management, which is a very nerdy space, um, a lot about scale and technology. And I, I learned a ton. And I was pretty convinced that by six months, I was going to be fired because I you know, I, I realized that the hidden agenda of my boss was I was going to be the one that was going to make the engineers do what she wanted. Um, and that was that was the reason she hired me. And I was like, I don't really agree that she's right. So this is going to be a problem. Um, weirdly enough, right before I thought I was going to be fired, uh, the three people above me were all removed. And they brought in another guy to lead the program. And I said, hey, I'd love to product manage this with you. Um, and he said, yes, we should do this together. Like you have the information, you have the knowledge about the business logic and the business, and I have the technology. We will, we will absolutely, let's do this partnership right now. And we wound up building a team from two people. We started with two, 
uh, us two, and uh, quickly grew to about 87 people. Wow. We spent $13 million a year of, of uh, Pearson's money on identity and access management. Um, during that time, Pearson reorganized several times. Um, we wound up supporting the a billion-dollar K-12 unit um, alongside the billion-dollar higher ed unit and then all their international um, cousins, which is a very tricky landscape to navigate. Um, but it, what a learning experience, right? I had to. I suddenly was in in the the hot seat trying to define what is culture on the team going to mean. Eighty-seven humans is enough to have our own subculture, and really trying to define what is excellence. Um, what does it mean to be part of this group? And uh, re- just loved it. I love. I learned a ton. My mentor was fantastic. Uh, just taught me taught me a lot. Challenged me a lot. Um, and really, I would say that was a that was a hugely formative experience, as well as learning a lot about technology, not just how to how to build anything, but how to build things that can scale. Um, B- Pearson was a, a ten billion dollar a year company in revenue at the time, and wow. yeah. and with all these international stakeholders and so forth, but all of them charged with please innovate, and then they would come to me with their unique requirements, and I was like, look, Italy is not big enough to drive the direction of my program. <sighs> That's just not like, I, I'm glad that you've decided to innovate in this way, but we're not going to change login and access management at, at, at Pearson because of Italy. You need, you're going to need a lot of friends um, before you can bring that requirement to me. Um, and so it was, it was a very interesting uh, and enlightening challenge. So you learn a lot more about the dynamics of uh, international uh, business. You learned a lot more about the dynamics of technology, about uh, the education market, and building an organization up to eighty-six people and spending tens of millions of dollars. Yes, and I yeah. can I can honestly say, looking back, they probably could I could have spent them somewhat better. Um, I've less, I've learned lessons since that I wish I had had then, but. Um, but it was, it was great. I mean, what an education and we did build a lot of things, you know, they wound up selling off. They divided my role into two, two director roles, um, after I left and, um, spun off the K-12 division and sold that for a whole bunch of money. And it was, it was pretty neat to see it evolve from there. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, and, and, uh, back to your point about for-profit enterprises, uh, the life of the, you know, sort of the, the, the the lifespan of business is different than especially if you get investors involved and then you know they want to accelerate net present value and then everything goes at uh light speed right that's right um, so so uh okay so so uh so catch us up how did you get from Pearson to um three pillar global uh so uh, next I, I really wanted to work at a smaller organization I realized I was working on a product identity and access management is not a product, right? By the, any traditional definition. It is, even though I was an executive product manager, uh, my product was not bought or sold. So there's no P&L. Well, that, how is that a product? And so realizing that I was, you know, as I, I characterized it to my, my poor boss at the time, I was like, I feel like I'm managing failure for you. Like there's just low, you know, higher or lower levels of failure. Um, but everyone's disappointed all the time that we can't do more faster. Um, yeah, can you ex- explain that? So in other words, you're getting stuff done. It's just, you're not getting it done fast enough for them, or you're not always able to, if, if you're Italy, sorry, we can't do that for you. That's right. Well, and when you realize that, you know, my entire program as expensive as it was, is a tax on the business, right? So everyone else's revenue is being diverted to me. It's kind of like, you know, the city government paving your, choosing to pave your street. Um, it's we tax everybody and we some streets get paved this year and some don't. And so 
you know, I had stakeholders who were running, um, you know, $700 million businesses that were like, you need to listen to me. I'm the biggest, biggest fish in the pond and most of your funding comes from me. And I'm like, right, but we have a growth imperative. You're growing at 3% a year. This other business unit is growing at, at you know, 500% a year. You tell me which one I should be focused on. It's not obvious. Um, and it, it was so in the, the, the stakeholder management inside Pearson was nil. There was a lot of clicks, a lot of different um, groups of people who knew each other, sub communities and navigating those as someone who just wanted to build the most valuable thing possible uh, was really um, it was really difficult. Um, even okay, emotionally. But Scott, you have an yes. opportunity to teach here for uh, please do. So you're you're in a complex organization, a zillion dollar organization, as I like to call them with tons of stakeholders and their clicks, ringleaders, conflict, and you uh, have resources and uh, time and energy that is uh, that, that people for which people are competing. Yeah. So, uh, so here's the zillion dollar question. How do you, how did you navigate that? What, what norms, what, how, how do you, what, what, what ground rules did you follow for that? Yeah, so and it it definitely wasn't a, a plan and execute. It was more a read and react. Um, to be totally honest, so you know when we when we started out, we started a high, uh, funded entirely by higher ed. However, the different business leaders in higher education at Pearson North America at the time refused to meet with each other because they didn't feel like the ones who were making a lot of money and the ones who were you know upstarts didn't feel like they needed to be at the same table. Wow. And so I had to figure out a way and, and a staffing structure basically within my team that would counsel these different stakeholders independently in a hub and spoke model and try to get them to find consensus. Like this is the highest value thing we can do for you. Um, and, and that was incredibly challenging because again, they're making promises to their, to their stakeholders, to their uppers. And um, they're disappointed to find out that we're not going to play ball. We're not going to make that, po- that possible. Um, so navigating that disappointment, um, and then turning it into, but here's where I'm going to help you in ways that you didn't expect, um, and translate. So you're always translating back and forth. Um, so that's what I did. Like shuttle diplomacy. Oh my gosh. In so many ways, it was, I, (laughs) it still mystifies me to this day that these, these folks would not get into a room together and were really annoyed with the few times I was able to get them there. And, um, but really looking for, and one of the things that we did that, that was, truly different is it just so happened one of our user experience uh, folks um, was a cartoonist in his spare time. And so I was like, great, let's make a cartoon of what it is that we're doing and how this platform, this new platform that we're building at extraordinary expense to our our stakeholders is going to deliver value for them and why it's so, why it's brilliant. So we needed, we needed, I mean, I, I was using metaphors like satellites and warehouses and shopping carts and uh, I was using all kinds of interesting metaphors that that they, and it was really great. The the CEO of the company, um, who I never got to meet in person, uh, Marjorie Scardino at the time, this, uh, spitfire of a woman from Texas, uh, running this this old UK company, UK based company. Um, you know what came back to me was th- this is the most brilliant technology ask I've ever seen um, because it was steep in how are we going to affect students and how are we going to affect the business the way business is done. How we're going to give it more flexibility uh, to go to market in new ways. Um, so that was so you, so you were always mission driven. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I. It's even funny now. At, at, uh, you know, now that I'm chief evangelist, they've asked if I want uh, you know commission on a number, and I'm like, no, I'm I'm only interested in helping buyers buy better. I think product development can be done better. 
making our clients stronger makes sure it makes it possible for our craftspeople to show up and do better work. That's what I'm, that's my mission now. Um, I, I love that. And you, and you, 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 you were leading product development for a year and a half. Um, and, uh, is that the role you came into? No. So I was, uh, so I, I went to a, a couple of startups, uh, ed tech companies that had, uh, they had big exits. Um, but while I was at the second one, I really had a high, high performing team. I was, I was chief product officer and then chief technology officer there and had a culture that was just clicking. I just really liked them. Um, and they were, they were really good at what they did in ways that, uh, the executives didn't know. Um, so I, I had to, it was a really interesting journey, but I, I felt like I'd had my second high-performing team, and I was like, I'm not giving this up for anything, uh, because the, just the fact I got to bite off that apple once uh, is is just pure luck. To to be part of a high-performing team is intoxicating, um, but to have it a second time is a is a blessing, and and, and I don't want to um, walk away from this. And it was interesting. I was actually uh, my CEO was putting a lot of pressure on me to outsource uh, to find a vendor, a cheaper vendor, um, so we could get some some cheaper engineers. And, you know, I take these meetings and it was, uh, it was, it was horrible. I mean, I would just go to these meetings to get data points on why not to hire any of these companies. Right. And, and then, um, an engineer told me about uh, an outsourcing experience that they had had, uh, before I joined this company. And, um, she said, look, I still use lessons they, that they taught me in my work every week. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm getting a dividend every two weeks off of an investment made a year before I joined. I have been thinking about this wrong. What if I could bring in a company like that, that was actually an investment in my people that actually made my people better and was part of their education and satisfy my CEO's needs. I, I can do a two for one here, but I didn't know that something like that existed. I'd already at that point outsourced three times. They were dismal failures. Um, and so I, I just treated outsourcing as a, as a career limiting move. And um, interestingly enough, I got introduced to Three Pillar. They're they're local to me. Um, I've worked in this industry in this area for 20 years, and had never heard of Three Pillar. And a friend of mine said, "You should check these guys out." You know who knows? And got to know them. Um, went to a workshop, uh, met some folks, and uh, sort of found out that I was actually being interviewed. Um, they they had me meet with these people, and I didn't know why. They didn't know why they were there. I was like, "Well, if you, as long as you're here, I have." topics that I'm interested in, I'd love to talk to you about. And uh, afterwards they were like, well, actually we would like to hire you. And uh, I oh, was that's, like, that, well, that's so great. <laughs> it's okay, so, so weird. For, for, for listeners listening saying, Hey, I I'm supposed to go out and, and, and hire a company. Uh, uh, how, 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 how'd you, how'd you, how'd you pull that fast and loose? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wish I knew cause I did not, I thought I was interviewing them. Uh, and and I was sold. I wanted to buy. Um, I was ready to buy. And I actually turned down Three Pillar twice. Um, a lot of people here don't know that. Um, but they had different roles they put in front of me. And, has, and, and they wound up inventing a role, to be honest. Um, the CEO was like, I want you on this team. Um, I think you have a lot to offer. And so invented a job for me. Um, and I, I definitely did not feel ready to take on a large global organization. So he gave me U.S. Engineering and our solutions group, which does uh, sales support proposals. Um, and that was just a great entree into Three Pillar for me. And eight months later, uh, the CEO asked me to, to take over all of product development. And that was yet again another, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And so, and, and you've been chief evangelist for how long? 
Um, so that's relatively recent, depends on it where you date it. Um, but I've probably been doing uh, this role for about six months. Um, before and- that, I was I had kind of stepped back from from owning all of uh, product development because it became very much more operational, uh, much less uh, talking to craftspeople, uh, getting into the we. I like getting my hands dirty, so uh, sitting all the way up there, it was a lot more about operations. What's our attrition rate? What's what's our client retention rate? So all those kinds of things. What's going on over here? Um, which I didn't mind doing it, but I, I liked getting closer to the people. And, um, and so then I, I took over product and user experience and, and focus on crafting communities for the organization overall. Um, and so we have a, we had communities of practice, which was a grassroots, uh, movement, um, in Romania. And I had taken that in my time as, as product development leader and made it a global initiative. And so then getting to like push that by joining those calls and, and, uh, pushing the envelope, getting people to think about their work more richly, that became my role, which sort of definitely set me up to be then chief evangelist more external facing. And and uh, so it's not the internal culture of craftsmanship that you own, but rather uh, evangelizing what Three Pillar Global can do for others. Well, it's, it's if you ask the CEO right now, you tell me my, my priority needs to be what we can do for others, um, moving the revenue dial. Um, but I still maintain um, a lot of connection with the uh, all of our infrastructure around reinforcing that culture of craftsmanship that I that I identified in my first year as, as product development leader, and uh, started articulating for the purposes of investing in it and making it a differentiator for our clients. So it works out really well because I can speak uh, very specifically to the journey of going from being an engineering services firm that does what you want to a product development firm that does what you're intending. And 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 you're leading um, this effort. Uh, for a community of uh, thousands of engineers and designers and others in nine countries. And uh, you're having outcomes that include being able to deliver Downton Abbey to uh, my wife's television. <laughs> That's correct. Yes. Um, and, and, and do you have, uh, if, if, if you're on your way up an elevator with um with a young upstart who's looking at you and, and saying, well, how do I get to be you? Do you, do you have an elevator uh, version of your best career advice? You know, I, I really believe in, in what I said earlier about re- reciprocity. Um, curiosity, first of all, is flattery. Um, people really like it if you're genuinely interested, and, and I'll emphasize on genuine. Um, if you're genuinely interested and then genuinely interested in helping, um, you know, if you're asking somebody for time, what do you, how are you going to, you know, turn that into value to them. Um, not, not transactional, but in, in human to human ways. Um, but you'd be amazed at what people are willing to do to, for an interested party. So uh, I, I've, I've been incredibly blessed, but also asked lots of questions. Um, and I really think that the genuine curiosity and then the willingness to apply what I learn and show that I'm, I'm listening closely, that I'm, I'm taking notes and that I'm applying that really wins you an incredible amount of, of, uh, of interpersonal capital, reputational capital that then um, leads to great outcomes for you in your career. Scott Varho, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. 
Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.